a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome to the show, fellow wrong thinkers. I have Eric Peters from epautos.com joining me again today. Eric, how are you? I'm on my feet. Uh, I'm, I'm still feeling a little bit under siege and depressed at the sight of all of these cultic diaper wearers everywhere, even though, at least in my area, the uh, the forcing of the diapering has dialed back. But still, people are walking around with their Jim Jones masks on. Yeah, you actually had a really great column here just recently about, uh, you know, here comes the Kool-Aid. And, mm-hmm. and I know for some people that may seem, hey, come on, that's kind of a harsh uh, comparison. But it, there's a lot of, of mindless obedience going on here. And uh, let's, let's go ahead and start here. I think you have probably, you have probably mm-hmm. become one of the more, uh, the, the foremost um, outspoken proponents of, look, folks, don't put on the mask. It really has nothing to do mm-hmm. with your health. And you outlined some of the reasons why mm-hmm. you think this isn't about the science and it ain't about health. Well, yeah, and that's a, it's a pretty self-evident proposition to make when you take into account the fact that literally any old cloth qualifies as a quote-unquote mask. You can pull up one of those neck socks. You can uh, put a dirty old bandana over your mouth. Uh, you can put one of those little dusk masks that woodworkers wear over your face. Uh, you can put a motorcycle helmet on. These things all qualify as quote-unquote masks and admit you to the cult And uh, the reason that I say that, again, is if this were about sickness, if this were about preventing uh, a virus from being transmitted, then there would be standards as far as these mask mandates are concerned. There would be, at a minimum, uh, a requirement that people wear some sort of device that, uh, that filters out viral particles both in and out, minimally. But there is no such standard. And the fact that you can walk into pretty much any store you want that has a mask mandate uh, with that neck thing uh, pulled up over your mouth or a dust mask or a motorcycle helmet proves on the face of it that this is not a health issue, that this is an obedience training issue. No, I, I completely agree. I, I did take note as I visited the local grocery store here a few days ago, um, there were a lot more maskless faces than I've seen in a while. I'm guessing about 40% of the people I encountered were unmasked, and there's really no strict enforcement. But I've noticed, too, that um, even those places that do draw the line on you need to have a mask, you know, they have the enforcer mm-hmm. sitting there at the door, it doesn't matter if it's hanging from one ear. It doesn't matter if it's no. sitting on your chin. It's just as long as it's on, okay, you got your mask, you're good, uh, which, which is exactly what you're saying. It's not about, you know, really stopping germs or stopping a virus. It's just, are, do you have your badge of compliance? Do you have it there in your hand? Good. Okay, you're good. That's exactly right. It, it shows that you've bent knee to uh, the religion. That's really what we're talking about here. This is a fetishistic, cultic kind of thing that's going on. And one of the working definitions of that is that you don't question, you obey. There is a tenet of dogmas that, uh, that you're supposed to simply accept at face value on faith, right? And that's what we're talking about. Just listen to what the Gesundheitsführers tell you and don't question, uh, just obey, which is essentially what Jim Jones told people to do. Right. Well, and, and what you're alluding to, too, with the, <clears throat> the sense of uh, depression 
and, and discouragement. Um, I promise you, you are not alone in that that sense. When you look around and, and you, you see how many people are willing to go along with it, and I, I'm not saying that they're dumb. I'm not saying that they're evil for doing so. I think they're just doing it because that is the path of least resistance, and there comes a point where some, sure. you've got to draw a line somewhere. There, there is a herd instinct in people, and it's, I think, just an aspect of the human condition. If you went back to Germany in the 30s, uh, you know, probably a lot of people weren't fervent Nazis, but they, they felt that they had to put on that armband or at least pretend to go along with the program because they didn't want to be singled out as people who defied what was received then as the proper, right, uh, moral thing to do, which was to be an ardent Nazi. You know, the, the, the parallel, I think, uh, is valid. Uh, that's what we're seeing today. People are being, being heavily pressured to, to go along with this and, and pretend it's a good thing. And if they don't do it, then they're marked out. You know, I told you off the air how I'm beginning to feel depressed about uh, just leaving my house, not because I'm being forced to put on a diaper, just because it's an it's un- uneasy feeling to walk into a Kroger or, or another store and be the only person in the place who isn't wearing one of these things. I saw a meme yesterday that I thought summed it up rather well, um, and it was a, it was just a still photo of Clint Eastwood from uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, you know, with his mm-hmm. poncho and his cowboy yeah. hat and the cigar mm-hmm. sticking up, and it's how I feel walking into a store and being unmasked. <laughs> right, right, and I think that this is deliberate. I think it's intentional. I think they're, they're trying to marginalize uh, any wrong think, any deviance from their orthodoxy, via this social pressure, which in many ways is a great deal more forceful than any legal pressure that's been applied. Well, I appreciate you holding the line where you're doing it, and and I hope that the message is getting out. You had mentioned to me off the air, uh, President Trump has come remarkably close to to debunking the masks. Talk to me about some of the things you've seen that that seem to indicate that uh, he doesn't appear to be fully supportive of, of being masked up either. Yeah, uh, the other day, he didn't quite say it, but he almost channeled Ronald Reagan when Ronald Reagan uh, uh, challenged Mikhail Gorbachev, the last leader of the Soviet Union, to tear down the Berlin Wall. He came very close to saying, take off the mask. He didn't quite say that, but he did say that people are getting tired of sickness kabuki, tired of having their lives trampled for the sake of this, this supposed pandemic, uh, the actual pandemic, excuse me, the pandemic. And, and for the first time, he publicly criticized uh, the Supreme Gesundheitsfuhrer, uh, Dr. Fauci. So might be a little bit late, but I'm glad that he's done it nonetheless. Yeah, that's now for for Trump to break break ranks with Fauci. I mean, he's I I got the impression that he wasn't exactly following Fauci's uh, you know instructions to the letter, but um, that that is good to see that uh, that he is willing to criticize. Does it does it appear to you that maybe this is becoming one of the uh, more prominent divides, more so than left right or Republican Democrat? It's lockdown versus don't lockdown. Well, it, I think it does cleave along political lines, and I'm I'm hoping that the orange man, in an adult manner, not name-calling, not finger-pointing, tries to assuage the fears of the public uh, during the debate that's coming up this Thursday and puts the risk into context and and tells people that this business of being petrified and living in terror uh, is completely unjustified, it's over the top, and uh, just explain to the public really what's going on so that people can make rational decisions and this this awful mass hysteria can somehow be dialed back. 
Well, here's here's hoping. I mean, we got two weeks to go until election day. Um, I do want to kind of ask you your thoughts on uh, some of the allegations that uh, you know maybe maybe Biden's goose is cooked with the uh, revelations that uh, his son Hunter's laptop um, contained uh, some pretty incriminating information. Do you buy into that? Is it Russian no, disinformation? <laughs> I, I don't buy into it at all. I think that the people who are pinning their their tail on that donkey and hoping that that's going to sink Biden. Um, are of a piece with the people who thought that the Miss Lewinsky thing was going to get rid of Clinton back in the 90s. Uh, I think at this point, the majority of the electorate doesn't care at all about Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden is not running for office. And yes, I understand that it's connected to Joe Biden, but this, this issue, it's very complicated, it's very abstract, uh, and it's not on, on most people's radar. People are, I think, much more concerned uh, about other things that affect them directly. And Obviously, the elephant in the room is this whole woo-flu thing and the hysteria around it. I think, to me, that is the thing that, that Trump should be talking about, not constantly tub-thumping about Hunter Biden. What about the uh, social media censorship? I don't think I've ever seen uh, social media – well, I haven't ever seen social media close ranks well, like media this, but the news media. Yeah. What do you think media about generally. that? Yes, it's un- that's unprecedented, and I'm glad you brought that up because I think Trump should bring that up. Because to any fair-minded person at this point, it's become very obvious that the media, which is allegedly this impartial purveyor of, hey, what's the news? What's going on? They're clearly in the camp of Joe Biden and the left, and they're doing everything that they can, and without even attempting to hide it anymore, uh, to, to assure that Biden wins and that Trump loses. And that's outrageous. It's, it, should, it should offend any fair-minded person. The news is about purveying the information and then letting us the consumers of the news, the people who read the papers and watch the programs, make up our own minds, not to hide news from us, not to manipulate news in the favor of their, their, their favorite candidate. Here, here. We are uh, coming up on the break, so we'll, we'll break away for a moment. Again, we're talking with Eric Peters from epautos.com. Uh, there's a lot going on there. And by the way, Eric, when we come back, mm-hmm. I do want to pick your brain about a couple of the recent articles you've written on a couple of different cars. In particular, you know I have an interest and a mm-hmm. little bit of a love for the, the Dodge Charger, so I want to get your take yep. on, on the Charger. Sure. And, uh, and you, even, you even did a write-up on a minivan here recently. I did. That seems Sounds slightly great. out of character for you, but I, I thought it was a fantastic write-up since I'm, I'm used to you being behind the wheel of performance cars and the like. But Well, they send me minivans, too. Okay. <laughs> just, just one, one of okay. the hazards of the job. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back with Eric Peters right after this. is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you by Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse, as well as Jeff Staples Real Estate and the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Eric Peters is my mm-hmm. guest from epautos.com. And Eric, we've, we, we talk about the Wu flu each week when we get together. It has been the story of the year. You were telling me, though, off the air that there's kind of mm-hmm. a chilling development, uh, again, along health emergency mm-hmm. lines in your home state of Virginia. Talk to me about that. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, our esteemed governor, the Coon Man, and the irony of this will become apparent in a moment, uh, recently announced that racism is now a public health issue. 
and you can see where this is inevitably trending. I hope. I hope people see this. They are going to pathologize anybody who disagrees with the BLM Antifa agenda, for example, which is how these people, like the governor, define racism. It's not, I hate black people. It's, I hate the liberal agenda. Now you're a racist. That's the way they're going to frame it. And they're going to portray people who disagree with that as mentally ill and dangerous to society in the same way that they are trying to portray people who deny the woofaloo narrative and don't don the diaper as threats to public health. And there is historical precedent for for governments that have, uh, you know, diagnosed your non-cooperation or your unwillingness to embrace the narrative as mental illness. Isn't that the reason mm-hmm. that uh, so many people were sent to the gulag in the Soviet Union to get oh, their sure. thinking that, right? That was one of Stalin's favorite tricks. If you disagreed with him, uh, if you deviated from the orthodoxy, then clearly you are a mentally ill person because obviously only a, no no you know no. Uh, no non-sick person would ever have any dispute with, with the great genius Joseph Stalin. So, yeah, that's exactly what they did. In addition to criminalizing it, they pathologized it and, and portrayed you as a mental defective. Orwell, of course, wrote about this as well in 1984. There's a, a very wonderful dialogue scene between Winston Smith, the protagonist, the main character, and O'Brien, the inner party member who was torturing him. And he explains that it's not enough to simply obey. You have to want to obey. You have to be willing to negate reality and accept the reality that they tell you is reality. And if you cannot do that, then that is a sign of your being mentally ill. Wow. Well, I don't even want to ask where it could go from there because I don't think I really want to know the answer. Well, I unfortunately think that what we're seeing develop is uh, a schism. Um, in American society, in American politics. And, uh, you know, the masking and the woo-flu narrative is one aspect of it. This, this, this weaponized use of the term racism is another. And these are irreconcilable differences. It's not merely a difference over uh, particular policy. It's not the old Republican versus Democrat thing. I, I kind of feel like we are effectively at war right now, and it hasn't yet gotten to the shooting point, but it may just get to that point, unfortunately. Yeah, there's a definite sense, and, and I, I don't say this to be dramatic, but there's a definite sense that uh, next Tuesday um, there there's a real good possibility that that schism will break wide open, and it doesn't matter who wins. Um, I think It doesn't one, matter who wins, exactly. One side wants absolute control, and, and they have made it clear they're not going to be denied. That's right. And, you know, if the orange man loses and they win, it's not going to be sufficient that they, you know, to get back to the, the face diaper thing, that they diaper themselves if they want to. They are going to force or attempt to force everybody to wear that diaper all the time. Joe Biden has said this explicitly. And uh, he's also said just the other day that he would force uh, uh, the vaccine, national needling. Uh, and you can see where that's going. People aren't going to put up with that. I won't put up with that. The last thing that I want is to get into a fight, a physical fight with anybody, but I'm not going to bend knee to that. I don't know how you feel about it. I don't know how people out uh, listening to this program feel about it, but my, my gut tells me there are a lot of people for whom that is a, a bridge too far, a line across the sand, and they simply will not, will not kowtow to it. Well, it's the kind of decision a person needs to have sorted out ahead of time. If you wait until the moment is upon you to then choose, it's going to be a lot tougher to make a principled stand. You've got to make your choice right. ahead of time. Too late That's to grow right. a backbone at that point. 
Yeah, you know, I'm I'm going to have an interesting report for you on election day. You know, I'm going to go vote in person because I think that's very important. I got my voter registration card along with a flyer from them saying, you know, masks strongly urged but not mandated. And it's going to be interesting to see whether I'm the only person in that line not wearing the face diaper and not uh, abiding by their other sickness kabuki. I'm not standing six feet apart from people. If I see friends of mine, I'm going to walk up to them and talk to them, and we'll see what happens. I'm looking forward to I'm. I'm actually looking forward to hearing from you on and around Election Day. I'm sure we're going to have even more to talk about. Do you we mind will. If, do you mind if we shift gears a little bit? I want to pick your brain about uh, the uh, Dodge Charger. You, uh, oh, that's easy and fun. Yeah, let's do it. You did a nice write-up on this. Now, look, I, I love horsepower. I love, I'm, I'm not a, a huge car aficionado, but there is something that's just unique about having the feeling of some real horses under the hood when mm-hmm. you step on the gas pedal. Um, talk to me about your impressions of the 2020 Dodge Charger. Well, the Charger is kind of a time machine. It's a brand-new car, but it's also very much like old cars used to be in that it's very big relative to the typical car, and it has a very big engine. Uh, you, know, you can get a nice big Hemi V8 in that thing in a variety of configurations, all the way up to uh, the Hellcat configuration, which has nearly 800 horsepower, if you can imagine that, uh, with air conditioning and all the amenities and the ability to run a 10-second quarter mile, which is, you know, for car people, that that pops your eyes out of your head because a 10-second quarter mile is something generally that could be performed only by a car that came to the track on the back of a trailer. And this is a street car that you could drive every day to work if you wanted to. Wow. Have, have they made any uh, significant changes? I know V8s are very, very rare these mm-hmm. days. Yes. Well, the beauty of the Charger, as I mentioned earlier, is it's essentially an old car that's still being sold new. Uh, its lineage dates back to uh, the current model, hasn't been changed since 2006 or 7, I think it is, off the top of my head. So it's, uh, you know, it, it does not have all of the latest, as they put it in air quotes, safety assists and all. You can get some things like that in, in it if you want to, but you can skip it. And it's still fundamentally the kind of car that Americans used to have generally, and which now have become very, very rare for a number of reasons, most of them having to do with the government imposing various mandates and regulations that have made it very, very difficult for any company to build cars like that anymore uh, and comply with all of the federal fatwas. Now, uh, Dodge has gotten away with it because they've essentially got the market cornered. Nobody else sells these things, and they sell really well. So the money that they make from, from selling all these cars helps to compensate for the high cost of manufacturing them in the era of all the government fatwaing. Okay. Now, we've only got a couple minutes here, so I want to shift gears. Now let's talk about the uh, Honda Odyssey minivan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's ironic, isn't it, that minivans have become kind of rare, too. Uh, There are only, I think, four manufacturers that still make minivans, and uh, it's ironic because that layout is extraordinarily practical, particularly for families, and I speak specifically not just of of having the seven- to eight-seat capacity, but also those wonderful sliding doors which provide a tremendous opening into and out of the vehicle that you just don't get with the normal opening outward door. Um, the minivan, however, has become less popular because people don't like that, that sort of you know, suburban soccer mom stigma that goes along with the minivan. So instead, they're driving these crossover SUVs, which effectively they are minivans, but without the practicality of the sliding doors, without the usability of a pretty roomy third row. I had the Honda Odyssey, and the thing's wonderful. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a mini RV in addition to being a kid carter. You can get practically any luxury amenity that you want in the thing. And to top it off, the thing's pretty quick. Uh, standard V6, and it'll get to 60 in a little over six seconds, if you can imagine that, wow. which is right there with a lot of sports cars. 
Well, all I know is that with six kids, there was a time when I found that the most comfortable way to travel was with a minivan. So Absolutely. I, I never looked down on someone driving one, even though they look like, uh, where do I hand in my man card? No, you're cool, bro. <laughs> yeah, as long as you yeah, got I kids think, in yeah, there. That whole hand in the man card thing is ridiculous and silly. Uh, it, it, is, it is a smart choice for a vehicle, and I think it's manly to be smart. All right. Eric, great as always to catch up with you. Keep the faith, brother. I, I'm, I'm proud of you for being out there unmasked and uh, willing to show by example what it means to be a free individual. You bet. And thank you for the forum and thank you for all the great work that you do as well. All right. I'll look forward to talking with you next week. You bet. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Okay, once again, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our program is brought to you in part by Jeff Staples Real Estate. This is particularly for my listeners within the state of Utah. That's my home state. But uh, if you are looking to buy a home or sell a home, you know it's a hot real estate market. And I would encourage you to get in touch with my friend Jeff Staples. He is with ERA Brokers Consolidated. You can access him at his website, jeffstaplesrealtor.com. And look, bottom line is Jeff has 13 years of experience. He is there to help you make sense of, you know, the biggest purchase you're going to be making most likely within your lifetime, and best of all, he is there to help you do it right, meaning if you're selling your home, he'll help you get the most for it. If you're buying a home, he'll help you get it for the best possible price. That's Jeff Staples Realtor, jeffstaplesrealtor.com. All right, let's talk about uh, let's talk about the economic recovery, such as it is. You know, there are states recovering from all the lockdowns and all the chaos of businesses being shut down involuntarily and so forth. Would it surprise you to know that America is experiencing two very different economic recoveries? John Miltimore, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, has a very well-written piece. All of his stuff is great, but he has been especially good on things related to COVID-19. And this, uh, this latest article shows how the evidence is suggesting that the disparity in unemployment between the various states stems in large part from the different ways that states have approached the coronavirus. And it's interesting because this is one of the few articles I've seen that talks about red states, blue states, and purple states. The ones which I guess are such a nice blend that it's, it's hard to distinguish. Not exactly red, not exactly blue. And we'll go with purple. Miltimore says nations across the world are still reeling from the COVID-19 pandemic, which triggered a global recession following economic lockdowns enforced by most developed nations around the world. New estimates put the economic losses at more than $16 trillion. I'm sorry, but we almost need a visual representation to get our minds around that number. You know, you throw the number, yeah, $16 trillion. Wow, that sounds like a lot. But to understand how much that is, you almost need to see like a chart, a graph, or, you know, here's what $16 million in $100 bills would look like. He says the United States saw its GDP shrink 9.5% between April and June 
That's the largest drop in modern times. And while macroeconomic data is useful, John Miltimore says it doesn't tell the full story. It's important to understand these economic losses have resulted in severe pain for people around the world, especially for the poor. A new Columbia University study shows 8 million Americans have slipped into poverty since May. That's according to the New York Times. Meanwhile, a recent World Bank study projects as many as 150 million people around the world are projected to slip into extreme poverty by 2021. So as the U.S. seeks to rebound from the global recession, it's worth noting that some states are having more success than others. For instance, Just the News recently published a breakdown of state unemployment data for August, that's the latest data available, based on U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics data. The figures showed that nationally the unemployment rate was 8.4%, but the economic pain was not distributed equally across blue, red, and purple states. Carrie Sheffield says fueled by broader, faster economic reopenings following the initial coronavirus crash, conservative-leaning red states are by and large far outpacing liberal-leaning blue states in terms of putting people back to work. She continued, in red states, those voting Republican for president in all four of the last four elections, the combined unemployment rate stood at 6.6%. Among blue states, those that voted Democrat in all four of the last presidential elections, that figure was 10.5%. Among purple states... All of the others either split two and two or three wins for one party and one win for the other. The unemployment figure was 7.8%. Now, John Miltimore says the data also shows that 10 of the states with the lowest rates of unemployment of those 10 states, nine have GOP governors, with the lone exception being Montana, while nine out of 10 of the states with the highest unemployment are led by Democrats, the lone exception being Massachusetts. He says evidence suggests the disparity stems in large part from the different ways states are approaching the coronavirus. And if you've been paying attention, you should should recognize this. Red states, particularly ones like South Dakota, Utah, Oklahoma, and Idaho, have been much less inclined to restrict economic freedom during the pandemic. Blue states, on the other hand, have been the most proactive in limiting economic activity in an attempt to limit the spread of the virus. That would include states like California, New Jersey, Rhode Island, New York, and Connecticut. John Miltimore says one might argue that these states could have had high unemployment rates before the pandemic, but BLS data from earlier this year shows that's not the case. Government figures from January 2020 show just two states had unemployment rates higher than 5%, Alaska at 6.1% and Mississippi at 5.7%. Meanwhile, the blue states of California... 3.9%, and New Jersey at 3.5%, Rhode Island 3.5%, New York 4%, and Connecticut at 3.7% had rates of unemployment close to the national average. He says the data suggests that the economic recovery of many U.S. states is being inhibited by government regulations designed to limit the spread of the virus. A recent Wall Street Journal article also recently pointed out that the strong economic recovery in the South is at least partially due to less fear of the virus. And John Miltimore says, while it's unclear if these regulations are having a positive effect, New Jersey and New York have the highest COVID-19 death tolls in the country. And Rhode Island and Connecticut are not far behind. The consequences of government-imposed lockdowns have been abundantly clear for months. The most recent unemployment data are one part of a larger economic picture that shows, so far, 
red states are doing a better job balancing the need to save both lives and livelihoods. That's from Rachel Gresler, an economist at the Heritage Foundation. Gressler told the Washington Examiner, quote, we've seen blue states using a pandemic as an opportunity to expand government control, impose excessive lockdowns not rooted in data, favor politically connected groups and allies, and demand federal bailouts for decades of poor budgeting, instead of taking responsibility and confronting their problems head on, end quote. So John Miltimore concludes, as lawmakers in America and around the world continue the difficult work of trying to limit the spread of the virus without causing further destruction, he says we should remember the cost of curtailing economic freedom is high. Just ask the 8 million newly impoverished Americans. I wish that was good news. I mean, the good news is uh, there, there's a little more uh, intellectual ammo for the idea that uh, lockdowns don't necessarily translate into, first of all, it doesn't translate into slowing the virus. The states that haven't locked down hard have done no worse. In most cases, have done far better than the states that did lock it down hard. But that economic toll, that is, that is scary. Look, the, the fear of sickness is one thing, but that fear of financial ruin, that fear of insolvency and, and of, of uh, poverty, bankruptcy, that's the stuff that concerns me because that is the stuff, you know, believe it or not, that's what drives a lot of people to the edge of despair. And I don't mean just feeling bad like, oh, woe is me. I mean despair, <clears throat> like they're ready to give up. In many cases, you know, to end their lives. Unacceptable. Not a good thing. Okay, you want to be challenged a little bit? Do you mind if I, can I push you just slightly outside the comfort zone? This isn't going to be a hard shove, but it's going to be a definite nudge. And it may make you uncomfortable, because I know it did me, too, as I, as I first looked at this article. This is from Brian Kaplan. The headline is, The Freedom to Do What Sounds Wrong. And it's one of the more interesting slants on freedom that I've seen in a while. So much so, I'm willing to risk making you uncomfortable in order to share this with you. I think it's, it provokes some pretty good thought. Brian Kaplan says, Friends of Freedom routinely defend the right to do wrong. If you're only free to do good things, what freedom do you really have? But he says, on reflection, this sorely underrates the value of freedom. Yes, the freedom to do bad things is important. Much more important, though, is the freedom to do good things that sound bad. Now, I've never thought of it in these terms, but listen to his argument here. Why is this so important? Because social desirability bias, bias rather, is ubiquitous. That's why. Social desirability bias. Long psych story short, when the truth sounds bad, human beings deceive and self-deceive. And he says this deceit in turn routinely rationalizes bad policies. For example, convenience and fun are often better than health and safety. At least that's what your actions declare whenever you drive to a restaurant instead of hunkering down in your home. But he says almost no one wants to give a public speech where they say convenience and fun are often better than health and safety. He says policymakers, in turn, often ignore the value of convenience and fun. Abandoning your dysfunctional country, well, that's easier to do than staying and fixing it. But no one wants to openly declare, I declared that my, I decided my country was a lost cause, so I got out of Dodge. We're going to come back to this in a moment, but uh, again, don't take this personally if it's making you uncomfortable. Sometimes that's a good kind of thought exercise. We'll be back right after this. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Sharing with you an article from Brian Kaplan, The Freedom to Do What Sounds Wrong. And I like the examples he gives about how uh, we deceive ourselves when the truth sounds bad. We do that because of social desirability bias. I like this example that he gives. Abandoning your dysfunctional country is often better than staying to fix it. But no one wants to openly declare, I decided my country was a lost cause, so I got out of Dodge. He says policymakers in turn vigorously spurn mere economic migrants. Kaplan says breaking inconvenient laws is often the best move, but few scoff laws will ever call a press conference to defend their behavior. Policymakers in turn enforce phone books worth of inane rules, working hard to get rich yields wonderful social benefits, but hardly anyone on earth will even admit to being rich. Policymakers in turn treat the rich as cattle or leeches. He says this rhetoric of freedom is a great way to neutralize this poison of social social desirability bias. Indeed, there's probably no better antidote in the universe. When busybodies try to use government to force everyone to sacrifice tons of convenience and fun for vestigial doses of health and safety, shouting, I spurn safety for convenience is going to get you nowhere. But shouting freedom, like you're in Braveheart, just might foil the busybodies' nefarious efforts. People won't welcome an immigrant who says he hated his country of birth, but they'll smile upon an immigrant who earnestly avows that he came for freedom. If you're caught breaking a stupid law, you won't escape a guilty verdict by conclusively showing that the law is stupid. You might, though, if you stand up for your freedom. And a rich man who wants to keep what he's earned won't win much sympathy by lecturing the world about economics. His better bet, rather, is to raise the banner of freedom. Now, none of this means appeals to freedom are or should be insincere. Brian Kaplan says, Pursuit of convenience and fun, fleeing your hellhole of birth, breaking stupid laws and working your way to wealth are all bona fide expressions of freedom. His point, rather, is about marketing. Directly defying social desirability bias is ever tempting but usually fruitless. If you want to defend good things that sound bad, your best bet is to reframe the debate. Want to stand up for business and the rich? Your best bet is to change the subject. What were we talking about again? Oh, that's right, freedom. Isn't this precisely what critics accuse libertarians of doing all the time? Pretty much. He says, what I'm saying is that their accusations are unfair, but we should strive to make them true. Mainstream political thinkers are too wrapped up in their own irrational demagoguery to even acknowledge the existence of social desirability bias. Once you fully absorb the distinction between what sounds good and what is good, the implied political danger will weigh upon your mind. What can rational human beings do in the face of such mindless emotionalism? Wave the flag of freedom. Wave it habitually. Wave it proudly. Now he says, even then you'll probably lose the war of words, but at least you'll have a fighting chance. I just thought that was kind of a, that was a fun and and interesting slant on uh, how to use your freedom. The freedom to do what sounds wrong. Jeff Minnick is one of my favorite writers over at intellectualtakeout.org. And I would encourage you, if you're not visiting that website on a regular basis, you probably should. There's a lot of terrific writers 
They aggregate uh, many different viewpoints on a number of different subjects. Jeff Minnick is a particularly thoughtful writer. I like his latest column, Stop with the Politics, A New Approach to the Culture Wars. In this, Jeff Minnick says, G.K. Chesterton once wrote, My country, right or wrong, is a thing no patriot would think of saying except in a desperate case. It's like saying, my mother, drunk or sober. And Jeff Minnick says, agreed. Both a country in the wrong and a mother on the bottle need some help and correction. But he says, hidden beneath Chesterton's quip, Chesterton's quip is an ingredient missing in today's rancorous culture. Love. We may disagree with our country when it takes a wrong turn, and we may want bombed and knock off the booze, but in both cases, we can go on loving them. Let's turn our backs on the Grand Canyon of 2020, separating left from right, Republicans from Democrats, and Trump supporters from Biden supporters for a moment. Let's also remember that while a nation represents our country and operates in various, or rather while a government represents our country and operates in various functions, a nation is much more than its government. Did you catch that? A nation is much more than its government. So instead, instead he says, let's ask our friends and foes alike whether they love America. Let's ask what they feel about a country that produced George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, Harriet Tubman, Booker T. Washington, Eleanor Roosevelt, John F. Kennedy, and thousands of other remarkable people. Let's ask about what they think about the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, political documents that have inspired other freedom-loving peoples around the globe. Let's ask them and ourselves if we feel a tug in our heart when we see the American flag waving over our post offices and from the front porches of private homes. Let's ask if we experience a surge of pride when we sing the national anthem at sports contests, or when our children recite the Pledge of Allegiance, or when they learn the names and histories of Sequoia, Daniel Boone, Abigail Adams, James, Bow- James Bowie, uh, Ulysses S. Grant, the Wright brothers, and others who built this country. He says, let's look at the res- this remarkable land where we live and ask whether we appreciate its beauty. The October hillsides in Pennsylvania, which flame red and gold in autumn sunsets, the broad fields of the Midwest, the windslept plains in Wyoming and Texas, the majestic Rocky Mountains where snow is already falling. And what of our painters, novelists, and playwrights? Can we still appreciate the poetry of Anne Bradstreet or Edgar Allan Poe, Emily Dickinson, and hundreds of other American voices? Do the works of John Steinbeck, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Herman Melville, Edith Wharton, Thomas Wolfe, Thornton Wilder, and other writers still have something to say to us about our country? What about American music? From classical to jazz, from folk songs to rock and roll, we have a wonderful tradition that many of us still love and treasure, a blending of cultures ranging from the hardscrabble hills of Appalachia to Bourbon Street in New Orleans and from Tin Pan Alley to Nashville, Tennessee. For more than two centuries, American songs have entertained us in the good times and sustained us in the bad. He says American innovation, invention, and production also deserve applause. For centuries, our technology has brought many gifts to our citizens and to the world. In the last 100 years, the free enterprise system has helped reduce worldwide poverty rates to record low levels, while giving our people here at home one of the highest standards of living in the world. But Jeff Minnick says, despite all of these achievements, many among us appear to have lost their love for their country. They not only hammer away on American flaws, but they also demand fundamental changes that would, if enacted, render American ideals and accomplishments 
obsolete. Some of them have torn down statues of famous Americans. Others are now attempting to tear down the country. He says, imagine this scenario. Two men are looking at a century-old ramshackle house on Royal Avenue in Front Royal, Virginia. The first man envisions tearing the building down and erecting a quick stop at gas station on the site. The second sees the home, perceives the beauty behind the weather-beaten wood and peeling paint, and sees a home that renovation could turn into a castle for his family. Such is the case with our country today. Some desire destruction, others desire renovation. Now he says Americans have traditionally stood with the second man. Throughout our history, we have looked for ways of improving our country. Over time, we ended slavery, Jim Crow, and enacted sweeping civil rights bills. We encouraged innovation. We expanded our educational system. We sought to make laws protecting individual freedoms. He says, writer James Baldwin once declared, I love America more than any other country in the world. And exactly for this reason, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. Well, Jeff Minnick says, today America has a mob of critics. But he says, I'm not feeling the love. I think this is a good point for maybe a little self-reflection. Look, there's so much I'm frustrated about, and, and I'm very openly against much of what our government does or is, is attempting to do. And I've had people throughout my career tell me, Brian, you hate America. <laughs> if, if you've ever stood up for your freedoms or you've ever stood against particular government programs or behaviors on the part of people employed by government, you have probably heard the same thing. Why do you hate America? Why do you hate your country? And I wish I'd have had uh, some of the material here that Jeff Minnick has, has supplied in terms of intellectual ammo to explain. I don't speak out against the things that I speak out against because I hate my country or its people. I do it out of a sense of love in the same way that I love my family members. And if I had a family member who was struggling and, and going through something that may be engaging in self-destructive behavior, absolutely I would speak out. And here's the thing. I hope I hope that when I do speak out, you get a sense that I'm doing it out of love and not just out of a sense of, boy, he's really venting his spleen. I can be that way some days, but I'm just telling you from the bottom of my heart, I say what I say because I love freedom. I love my country. I love the promise of what it has been and what it could yet be. That's why I encourage people, let's return to those first principles that make it possible. This is The Brian Hyde Show.